following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. we look to God's Word today, I think my text needs a very brief explanation. You're here on Palm Sunday. You say, I see the palms. Yes, it's Palm Sunday. The children sang about palms. The senior choir sang about palms or greeting Christ. Aren't you supposed to preach about Christ entering Jerusalem? That, of course, is preached on, have done that before, and will undoubtedly, Lord willing, preach on that again. Many times on Palm Sunday, I choose a text from the Passion, something happening to Jesus in his trial or on the cross itself. And I was headed that way, but I, since we're not in a series that really lent itself to that, preaching about David, I was seeking, well, what, what do I feel led to look to? And I prayed about it, thought about it, and didn't really come up with the right thing. And somehow, this thought came into my mind. What if I only had one more sermon to tell everybody present the most important thing I would want them to know about Christ. I don't have any prophecies about my health or anything of that nature, but you know, what if I only had one time to tell you what I would want you to go away and be sure that you heard about Jesus Christ? And for some reason, the text immediately came to mind, Matthew eleven twenty eight. I would want you to know the great invitation that Jesus gives. Because really, aiming at that invitation and your response to it is what Holy Week is all about. So even though these aren't exactly the events you usually expect to hear on Palm Sunday, listen as I read Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Word of God. If you ever have an occasion, I would assume it would be necessitated by some medical condition, that causes you to visit Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. You may know you'll be visiting a large complex covering many city blocks, multiple buildings. You need directions where to go at Johns Hopkins. But if time somehow allows you and you've never been there before, I would urge you on that visit 
to look up the older Victorian building, which is still, I believe, an administrative center that was one of the original buildings of that hospital more than a century ago. Here, under a rotunda in an entrance lobby, you'll find something that will bring you up short if you're not expecting it, so I'll warn you. Johns Hopkins is not a religious hospital. It was not founded by a church or a religious order. It was a privately run medical institution who happened to have some very sound Christians on its founding board. And as you come into that rotunda of this Victorian building, you're stopped short, almost amazed, by a ten and a half foot tall Carrera marble statue of Jesus Christ. He stands there with his hands out to you like this. The wounds in his hands and feet are clearly visible. And at the base of that huge statue that just, it stuns you when you walk in and see it, is the saying that I've just read for you. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. The staff there for a century have found every day at the base of that statue notes, flowers, little mementos, things left there as people come and pray to the Christ who is called, by the way, the statue is called Christ the Divine Healer. Now, if Jesus depicted in cold, lifeless stone can grab the attention and the thoughts and draw the interest of people the way that statue does. Think about the power contained in the original invitation that the statue commemorates by the living Christ. Things said by the historic and living Jesus Christ even rather a time before he went to the cross to die. And he said, come to me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, I will grant you rest. This, of course, is about the salvation of God. It's not simply about healing of bodies. In fact, that would really be incidental to this text. It's the salvation of God he's inviting you to. Reminding you of texts like Luke 19 that says, in the words of Jesus, that the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. Hebrews 7 25, where it is said of Jesus that he is the one who will save unto the uttermost all who come to God by him. He stands there and and makes that invitation based on the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 45, where God was speaking through the prophet and said, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I can remember rather vividly when these words of Matthew eleven twenty eight first gripped me. One of those moments, I don't know how you are in remembering things from your childhood, but certain things stand out, and stand out in such a way that when you think back, you realize the presence of God was in that thing. I was, I believe, an eight-year-old boy, I went with my grandfather. He had a business errand to do. We rode in his green Chrysler New Yorker, 1954 model. I remember that well. Grandpa went in to do the business. I can't recall what it was that he had to do. 
But I was left in the car. In those days, you could leave an eight-year-old boy in a car, and you didn't think too much unusual about that. And it was about a half an hour, it seemed to me, that he was gone, and I was getting bored just sitting there. And I was looking for something to attract my attention or, or something to do, I guess. And I was sitting in the front seat. I opened the glove box, and in it was a religious tract. I don't know who published it. My grandfather was a Mennonite. It may have been a Mennonite published tract. I'm not really sure. That doesn't matter. But it had this verse on it, Matthew 11:28, And I read these words, Jesus saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I can only tell you that it seemed to me like somebody was speaking to me from another world. Words of power. Words that just seemed to lift me out of my little eight-year-old being and say something very strong that I needed to pay attention to. And, and I didn't understand the full impact of them, and yet to this day I remember that hour and I remember the magnetic effect that that invitation had upon me. I never forgot it. It wasn't too long after that that I knowledgeably came to God through Christ and gave him my heart and asked him to be my Savior. Well, here it seems to me is the greatest person in world history, appealing to humanity in a broad way at the point of our greatest common need and offering us nothing less than what we do need the most, peace and reconciliation and wholeness with our God. There are just two main divisions that I see this text in today, and there are my two points. The first is to emphasize in verses 25 to 27 that Jesus claims to be the source of divine revelation. And secondly, in verses 28 to 30, that he claims to be the giver of divine rest. Look at the first section here and see how he reveals the face of God. He reveals it to those who come to him with childlike faith. Now, the issue is here of some coming to God and knowing God and some not in our world. And the Bible never fully explains why that is. Why do some people come to God and seek his salvation and others hear the same thing, hear all the same sermons, grow up in the same home, and will not come to him? Well, that's not explained here except to the extent that it says it's a matter of divine revelation according to the good pleasure of God. The sovereignty of God is here in revealing salvation. It's not a matter, it clearly states here, of learning or intellect. Verse 25 says there are even, these things are even hidden from the wise and those who consider themselves to have great understanding. You think of a Saul of Tarsus one of the best educated men in the ancient world. He studied with all the greatest teachers at the finest ancient universities, and don't think they didn't have universities then. They did. Centers with very wise philosophical thinkers and debaters and people who were expert in logic and so on. Saul was trained by all those people, and he was one of the cream of the crop, one of the smartest that there was. And he was educated in his religion as far as he was able to go. He was at the top of the class. 
And you certainly remember Saul, who hated Christians, of course, and hated the whole idea of Christ going to destroy some of those Christians in Damascus when he was thrown down into the road. By what? A revelation. Not a dissertation, not a book, not a lesson from a philosopher. He was thrown down in the road by the supernatural revelation of Christ by the Spirit of God. It knocked him flat. And he rose physically blinded for a while and became immediately thereafter Paul, the great apostle who would say in many ways later on, my great learning and all of that, nothing, rubbish, doesn't count for anything. You see, we're learning here from Jesus that no one climbs into heaven on the basis of their brains. Your education is not a ladder that will take you there, isn't it? I guess it's just about the time of year when students are waiting. Maybe you've already heard from, you know, the great prestigious university, the Harvards and the Dukes and the Yales are sending out their letters, I guess, and telling anxious students whether they got in or not. And some people think, oh, my whole life depends on this. If I can't go to Yale or I can't go to Dartmouth or whatever, that's my ladder to success. That's my ladder to a great future. Jesus is saying education and wisdom are fine, but they are not the revelation of the truth of God. God, in fact, descended his ladder to come into this world, came into a place called Bethlehem, came in weakness, came in lowliness, and he brought the glimpse of his own face and his own character the only glimpse that humanity is going to be able to see of the true God because the human face of God is in Jesus Christ. And this was done at God's initiative. It was God who revealed it. It was God who made it clear. It was God who brought his son to Calvary. People say, who crucified Jesus? And the debate, oh, the the Jewish hierarchy, oh, the Romans, oh, Pilate. God crucified his son. God revealed that amazing thing, that his son had to be the offering in the place of his fellow human beings who were not acceptable in his sight as they were in their sins. And God then reveals and opens the eyes of people to see this marvelous truth as he chooses to do it. Now, people don't like that. They say, you mean I can't control it? You mean God has somehow arbitrarily selecting people? We're not going down that road today. That's another whole subject and another whole sermon, for sure. But it's very clear here in the revelation of Jesus that it's a matter of God choosing. It says it right here in verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. But we can say this much, even though we can't explain the why this person and not this person gets the revelation, we can say what kind of a person does hear this revelation and does respond. That's here too. It's the person who actually, in spiritual terms, is a baby, is a little child, who comes and receives truth like the young children who sang to us who believe so many things because mom and dad tell them. They don't have the cold, jaded cynicism of 25 or 45 or 65-year-olds who say, oh, yeah, sure, I, you know, I can't believe that. 
Mom tells them, okay, mom says it, it must be true. This says the people who can receive this revelation from God about Jesus Christ are those who are the most childlike. Those who in their spirit and their soul and their mind are much like the way they were physically when they were first born. And mom had to do every single thing for them. They couldn't, you know, leave them alone in the house for a day. They were finished. They couldn't do anything. All they could do is cry out if they need something. A baby doesn't even know how much he doesn't know. And he cannot help himself. You all know how the camera is focused on that eagle's nest in York County, I guess it is. My wife is giving me hourly reports most days. I haven't watched it too much. I was watching one of the baby eaglets peck the other one. The other day I was hoping he didn't kill it. But here are these two helpless little balls of fuzz with mama eagle and papa eagle trying to raise them. They They can barely even hold their own heads up. They can't go and get any food. They will, if they mature, they will be like their parents, some of the most noble creatures in creation, soaring on their wings, beautiful to see with eyesight. I understand an eagle's eyesight is so penetrating. It can see a a mouse on the ground at a huge distance. But they have none of that right now. They're just little helpless nothings that can only open their beaks and squawk and hope that mom puts some red mash stuff in and that will nourish them. Jesus said, those who receive the truth about who God is and become right with God are those who receive the truth like that by helplessly in utter dependence receiving what he reveals. Matthew 11:27 says Jesus alone is the God revealer because he and the Father have an utterly unique relationship. No one knows the Father. How could anyone else reveal him? Jesus says, I'm the only one who knows him. And those whom the Father reveals this knowledge through me. If we would paraphrase, he's saying either you will see the face of God in my face or you will not see him at all. You have to see him through me because I am God in flesh. And so response to this invitation of Jesus really is the beating heart of what we call the gospel, the good news that God has revealed himself in Christ the Son. And if we would go beyond this a bit, and I won't go very far with this, but at the day of final judgment, the Bible also teaches that Christ will be the reigning judge whom every one of us is going to face. And we'll be asked, what have you done with me in that life that you lived? We will not be asked, oh, please present your resume when approaching my throne. Please uh, give me those two, no more than two sheets, you know, that you, you work on and you slave over to present yourself in the best possible image that you can contrive based on your jobs and your experience and your skills, and you hope and hope and hope this is going to get me the job. Jesus says, drop the resume before you even come to my throne because that resume is so much dust and ashes. It doesn't mean anything to the eternal God. Come to me and find that I am the one that can show you the Father. Luther wrote, about that judgment hour when Christ will be on the throne. And he said, here, the bottom falls out of all 
question of human merit, all powers and ability of reason, and that free will that men so exalt. He said, it all will count for nothing before God. Christ must do for us and give to us everything that we need in that hour. No question this text is saying your eternal destiny is determined 100% by your relationship of faith to Jesus Christ or the lack thereof. And either you will see the smile of God and dwell under his smile in eternity and in his good pleasure, you will be made right with him, you will be forgiven by him by faith in Christ, or you will exist in woe and regret and under the frown of God. And that state of existence will never end. Jesus reveals the face of God to those who have childlike faith. All right, that's the revelation part. But now the great thing that that so struck me when I was only eight years old, here in verse 28, Jesus grants eternal rest to the weary who ask him for it. He gives an invitation here and asks you to recognize that you have a deep need that only he can satisfy. The, The need is described. Those who are weary and heavy laden. If that only had a meaning on a physical level, I think it would apply to all the ways that we live such hectic and frantic, frazzled lives today. We're, we're all going in four directions at once. We're all impatient in traffic. We're all under deadlines. We work 55 or 60 hours a week, and we come home exhausted and watch an hour of TV, and the news gets us more upset, and, and we're having a little argument with our wife on the side. or something. I don't do that, of course, but we, uh, you know, we're weary. We're heavy laden. Life just seems like a tiresome thing. Finances aren't going well. Relationships aren't going well. We want to escape from it all somehow. We want to rest. And so we think, oh, there's got to be lots of ways we can figure out how to rest. Well, I need a vacation. I need a day off. Oh, snow day. Good excuse to stay home. Uh, What can I do? Take a cruise ship. Well, I need something different. I need someone different in my life. Maybe I better cultivate very quietly that a relationship of affection with that attractive young lady where I work. But we never escape. We only multiply the burden and make more complicated all the, the strings that tie us down. We are heavy laden people, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. A testimony was told by, we have a new members class going now, and I've taught this many times and have heard many testimonies. I remember a man who, he's no longer here, he's moved to another state, but I was probably about eight or ten years ago, he told me his story. It was fascinating how he first came to Christ. He said, I didn't grow up in a religious home, a Christian home. We didn't go to church. I knew just about nothing about Christianity. And he said, I had this annoying guy at my work. I worked for the telephone company or a telephone company. And he said, this guy, you always wanted to avoid him because he was always trying to witness to people about his faith. And he gave people Bibles. And, and we other workers figured out the easiest thing to do was just accept the Bible. Otherwise, he'd keep badgering you. So he said, he gave me a Bible and it had markers in it. Read this passage, read this passage, you know. And he said, okay, thanks. I'll, sure. And he took the Bible home and dropped it on a shelf and forgot about it. 
But then one day, some, for some reason, he got that Bible out. He was bored, and he was looking through the Bible and started to read the passages that were, had the stickers indicated that he was supposed to read. And it made him upset because he said the first thing that those passages seemed to do was make me feel that I was accountable to God for something that was wrong, something that I was responsible for. And I, he said, I couldn't figure it out. And he said, I didn't get Jesus in my focus right away at all. It was just this oppressive, increasing weight. I am not in a right adjustment with God. And I would read one passage after another, and it would just increase the feeling. And he told how it got so he could hardly sleep because he felt that he had to do something, and he didn't know what it was he was supposed to do. One day he was out for a morning run before work. And he said, this was just on my mind. I I was under so much pressure. He said, I just stopped at a park bench. And I just blurted out, God, I surrender to you. I don't know what you're trying to tell me. I'm not even sure who you are or why I feel accountable to you as I do, but I surrender to you. And he didn't say anything magic really happened. But from that point on, his reading of the Bible began to take a little different turn, and he began to see that God was telling him that once he had come to that point, he was ready to get some good news after he had heard the bad news. Back in Matthew 9, verse 36, Jesus once observed that all people in the world are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 23, 4, later on, he talks about how Religion by itself can only increase that sense of harassment. When he talked about the Pharisees who, who, you know, they had laws upon laws upon laws, and then they had footnotes to the laws yet. Obey this 97 things. Oh, by the way, there's four footnotes to law number 94. And that's the way they said you can come to know God. Keep all the laws. Jesus said about them, they tie up heavy burdens and put them on men's shoulders and are not willing to lift a finger to help because their religion is work, 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 work. And it only makes the situation worse than it was. The Bible brings an antidote, and Jesus speaks about that antidote here. It's in a small little word. The antidote is rest. It's the rest of God. Not a Sunday afternoon nap, not a vacation on a cruise ship, not self-medicating yourself out of a liquor bottle. It's the kind of rest David was looking for in Psalm 55 when he said, oh, that I had the wings of a bird that I could fly away and rest. He was speaking about it also in Psalm 38.3 when he said, my bones had no rest in them. My bones had no rest in them. This wasn't just a physical problem. This was a deep-rooted problem and it's a universal problem. I was absolutely struck, and I kind of stumbled on this on the internet, uh, some value in the internet, I guess. I, I came upon this interview, I believe it was 60 Minutes that did this interview a number of years ago, with New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady. I don't know about you, I don't have anything good or bad to say about Tom Brady, except boo Patriots, but other than that, I don't have anything against the man whatsoever. But here's an interview that happened before he won his fourth Super Bowl out of six that he has appeared in. And this reporter was interviewing this man, not yet 40 years old, 
Just imagine, if you're Tom Brady and they pay in cash, they pay in $100 bills in bundles. Tom Brady needs a wheelbarrow to take his monthly salary to the bank. I don't know how many million a month he makes, a couple at least. Imagine that in cash. Tom Brady is married to a gorgeous supermodel. He can buy anything he wants in this world. If he wants the biggest yacht there is, charge it. Don't worry, his credit's good. He is at the top of his sport, and he gets all this money and all this attention and all this fame. Why? Because he can throw a football better than almost any man alive, and he can do that. He's the envy of millions of young men. But Tom Brady told this reporter, I'm not faking a word of this. Here's what he said verbatim. Why do I think there has to be something greater out there for me? People tell me I've already reached the highest goals my life could have. But I say there's got to be something more to life than just this. The top quarterback has got it all. And he says, I don't have any rest. I'm not there. I haven't attained it, and I don't even know what it is that I haven't attained. The Bible could tell him. It's biblical shalom. Being at peace with God, the Sabbath rest of the people of God, it's called in Scripture. Being aligned in your inner being, being at peace with your past and your future and confident about how you stand because God accepts you. People look for this in every avenue except the place where they can find it. St. Augustine, back around 500 A.D., knew where it could be found in his famous little prayer, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God's rest in Christ ends this desperate search that people don't even understand what it is they're looking for. And it requires them to come and simply confess their helplessness, their need. They have to be that little child before God. God, I need everything and I have nothing and you are the answer to what I need. Now, have you noticed Jesus didn't simply say here, go to God, as far as giving directions on this rest issue. He could have said, well, whatever your notion of God is, maybe everybody has some kind of an idea who God is, you just go and approach the God that you invent, that you think of, that seems to be God to you, and it'll be taken care of. Did he say that? He was far more explicit. He said, come to me, because I exclusively reveal the true God. And only in coming to me will you meet the true God and rest in what the true God has revealed for you. Now, I don't have much time here to go into or develop the issue of what he says in verse 29 about being yoked to him. We all in Lancaster County have seen ox yokes, you know, the oxen pulling the famous Conestoga wagon and Here's two beasts laboring together, working hard. Some people would think maybe this is saying, ah, well, maybe the answer is Jesus and I have to get, get you know, harnessed up in tandem, and he does half of the work for this salvation and rest, and I do the other half. 
Absolutely not. I love the saying of a man named J.C. Ryle who said, the yoke of Jesus is no more of a burden to me than feathers are to a bird. Jesus did the work. The cross was the work. The agonizing, horrible, bloody, hard work was done by Christ. He says, come now, be yoked to me, and you won't have the work, but you'll have all the benefits that come from that work because you'll belong to me. So I tell you on this Palm Sunday that the wonderful, warm, from another world invitation that is in Matthew eleven twenty eight is the very crux of what it means to be a Christian. I don't want there to be any doubt in any mind of anyone going out of this room that I didn't tell you this. This is the heartbeat of the Christian gospel. The words of Jesus, come. Come to me. Come right now. Come receive what no one else can give, what no one else knows. And the question that I hold out to you is, have you come to Christ? Is it even possible? It doesn't seem possible to me, and yet I assume that it is, that you might be a person who's come to this church. I've been here 20 Easter's now. And you might have been here every one of the 20 Easter's that I've been here in 20 years before that. And you, oh, great, Palm Sunday, good, spring, new clothes to wear soon, happy day, Easter. But you've never come to Christ. Is that possible? That you've listened to the truth over and over, and you sort of sit there with your arms folded, and you say, well, you know, I'm kind of smarter than all these people. I don't believe in all these old fables and myths that they exalt on a day like this. Is it possible that the Son of the Most High God is saying, come to me, I can do what nobody else can do, and you say, I know better? Really? I pity you. You are, of all people, most to be pitied. If you would doubt the word of the Son of God like that, doubt the word of him who says, he that comes to me, I will never cast him out. The very heartbeat of Holy Week and the Christian gospel and all of Christianity is in this invitation. Come to Christ. He will be your rest. He will put you right with God. You will face your maker unafraid one day. In the Bible's very last chapter, written by John, Revelation 22, we have confirmation of this again in verse 17. It says this, the Spirit and the bride say, come. He who hears this says, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Come to Christ. If I could never say another sentence to you, let that be my last word to you. Come to Christ and find rest. Amen. Father, I pray that we would not toy with Easter. Of all the things in the world to somehow glibly turn aside 
or exalt and puff up our own wisdom and say, I know better than those Christians. What they're talking about is mythology. It's a fable. How I tremble for that person. I pray today. You might, like that man who told me years ago about being unable to run away or get away from your accusing witness in his heart, that you might pursue someone here until they too come to Jesus Christ. Amen.